Shortly after the first cases of COVID-19 were detected in California, the state aggressively took protective measures to flatten the curve of coronavirus spread by discouraging the formation of large, dense crowds. And for about two months, it almost seemed as if California had dodged a bullet. However, by mid-May, California was in the process of reopening on an accelerated basis, despite public health officers warning that this rapid reopening might lead to a new surge in COVID-19 cases. So today, we'll be talking with our in-house expert epidemiologist, Dr. Paul Shu. Welcome to Gente and Health, a podcast by the Center for the Study of Latino Health and Culture. I'm the center director, David Hayes Bautista, the old Chicano professor. This podcast is an extension of the research that we have been a part of for many, many years. So join us as we discuss the state of Latinos and as we unearth the voices of our gente and health. Dr. Hugh brings a diverse background and experience to inform his research and teaching, investigating the role of culture and other factors in minority health. Today, we'll be discussing a series of reports that we have been working on and releasing since March. But before we get to the reports, Dr. Sue, I'd just like to ask you a little bit. I got a, uh, an email from one of our sponsors, oh, about end of March after the state had shut down. And she said, you know, up until a month ago, I couldn't even spell epidemiologist. Now I can. But she said, can you tell me, but what do epidemiologists do? That's actually a, a harder question to answer than it seems. But at first, I just wanted to say thank you for uh, having me. I'm, um, honored to be able to uh, contribute to the research of the center. I think the short story or the short answer is that we study the pattern of disease, right? And that seems very straightforward. Well, sure, what's the pattern? The pattern can be affected by many things. You might want to look at it by gender, right? Is the pattern the same for males versus females? By age group? By race ethnicity? And as we know, that some groups are definitely more vulnerable uh, because they are more likely, for example, to be uh, essential workers. So uh, that's kind of the short answer, and it can get even more kind of dependent, depends on how, you know, dig, how much we want to dig into it. You know, we also can talk about the risk factors, what other risk factors might contribute to the pattern. And then just as importantly, once we've figured out what the pattern, what can we do about it, right? Because if we see a pattern and there's some, you know, differential or some inequity there, then we want to really try and address that particular inequity if we can. All right. Well, let's talk about uh, an inequity that kind of hit everybody. As I mentioned in the intro, California was the first state back in March to actually shut everything down to avoid large crowds forming because that's one of the ways that the coronavirus is transmitted is in large, dense crowds. And for about the first two months, up through about the end of April, it looked as if we had flattened the curve. Then suddenly things happened and that took everybody by surprise. And we released a report uh, towards the end of, or the middle of July, where we looked at what happened in California between Memorial Day, the end of May, and the 4th of July, the beginning of July, just six weeks. So could you just kind of share with our listeners um, kind of big bullet over point, what the heck happened? Well, um, as you mentioned, California had been doing really well. And I think that's partly because we were one of the first, we were one of the first states to shut down and most folks actually complied. 
right? They stayed at home when they could. Uh, when they did go out, they were wearing a face covering, trying to uh, stay socially distanced, uh, which was great, and that contributed, contributed to the low rates. But as you mentioned, um, things started to spike, and that's partially because California, uh, there was a push, I believe, to, you know, maybe it was from the businesses, maybe it was from uh, different or organizations or different groups, but we did start to open, and some of that opening may have been a little bit accelerated. And even during the acceleration, part of the problem was that people stopped complying. I think I'm, you know, and th this is something we can talk about. You know, people stop wearing face coverings. You know, maybe we, and we can talk about whether this was politicized or you know some of the other reasons but part of it was there was less compliance during this accelerated reopening. And of course, who suffers from that? Uh, the essential workers, the ones who are on the front lines who have to interact with the public, right? They have, uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, it's harder for them to enforce when someone comes into the store or comes into the restaurant and is not wearing a mask, right? And now they're being put in this really uncomfortable position of having to make a request to that individual or that patron, that customer, to, to put something on. And so, uh, and so I think that's definitely contributed to, to this spike that we've been seeing. Yes, uh, I've been seeing a lot of stories. I mean, here we are now, uh, almost two months after that, uh, of some patrons actually getting abusive, shouting insults, yeah. um, pushing people, et cetera, all because they were asked to wear a mask. Perhaps, uh, Dr. Shu, you could maybe explain just why does wearing a mask make such a big difference? So uh, COVID-19 is a respiratory virus. The main route of transmission, of course, is respiratory. That means your mouth, your nose, right? You breathe the virus in. Now, I know at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, there was some concern about surface transmission too. Uh, for example, you know, if there's a package or if somebody sneezes on the surface, and that's also one of the routes but that's definitely not as primary or not as large of a route as the respiratory. If we're talking about surfaces, somebody has to, somebody with it, with the virus has to sneeze on that surface. You have to touch the surface and then you have to touch your face, your eyes, so on and so forth. So, you know, the, the, you can see that's not as direct a route as just simply breathing it in. Of course, having a mask is a barrier against that. Right, and the better the mask, or the more um, compliant, and by compliant, I'm just saying the more often you wear it when you're outside, right, the less likelihood that you'll catch it from someone. You're not only protecting yourself, but you're protecting others as well in case you have it. You know, it's interesting as the uh, coronavirus is first erupting around the world. Uh, Different societies seem to have different approaches to what is my responsibility, what's my role in an epidemic, in that a number of societies uh, that tend to be more group-oriented, more community-oriented, uh, the thought is, I'm wearing a mask because I might be infected. I'm going to protect the others in the group from me, just in case. Whereas there are more individualistic societies where the mask is, well, this mask is going to protect me from you. I mean, it's not like, you know, I can protect you from me. It's, no, this is protecting me from you. So if uh, in societies that are a little bit more group oriented, there seems to be more of a, uh, a higher percentage of people wearing masks 
just because they feel it's part of this group, it's their job to protect the group. Whereas here in the US, we tend to have a highly individualized society, very individualistic, sort of the rugged individualistic, uh, where some people just assume that wearing a mask is just another individual thing that they can choose to do. Although they cannot choose to drive 100 miles an hour on the freeway because that's against the law. But uh, there's just seems to be different approaches as to what's my role, what's my responsibility as an individual during an epidemic in which my behaviors may influence other people. Wow. So we've seen uh, spikes emerging, Imperial County, now the Central Valley. And I'm just wondering if you could give us a big bullet point overview. Are we still in the first wave or is this the second wave or just where are we going with this from a, an epidemiological perspective? So I definitely don't think we've seen the second wave yet because um, as you know, we've seen this spike and it really hasn't gone down. It's kind of plateauing, but uh, it's, it hasn't really gone down as much as we would like it to. So if we mean by a second wave that you see this you know, drop and then after some time it goes back up, this is definitely not the second wave. We definitely haven't seen enough of a drop to, to even say that the first wave is over. Uh, I think the cases are still increasing, unfortunately. And as you're aware, we've uh, seen some preliminary data from uh, different uh, groups about the rate in the community. So LA County, anywhere between three to 5%. And that tells us that there's still 95% of people out there who are still vulnerable, right? Who have never had it. So there's still a lot of individuals out there who can get it. You know, if I'm a virus, if I'm the coronavirus, I'm a happy camper because there's 95% of the people out there who are completely available for me to infect. Right? So we definitely have, have some more work to do. Amazing. As we're chatting, I just a number of things come to mind. And one of the things that comes to mind uh, is the role that epidemics have played in shaping the population of Mexico and Latin America. And that also includes the two thirds of the United States that has been part of Latin America. Uh, for example, when Cortez landed nearly 500 years ago, 501 years ago in Yucatan, the population of uh, Mesoamerica is estimated to have been about 25.1 million. Cortez did not defeat the Aztecs. It was all the conquered tribes who hated the Aztecs who defeated the Aztecs. Cortez is really kind of an auxiliary. However, he brought disease, particularly smallpox. Yeah. And the populations of the Americas had no experience with smallpox, and it just ravaged and went over and over different waves of smallpox. And within eight decades, by 1600, the population of Mesoamerica had been reduced from 25 million to 1 million, nearly a 95% mortality rate. Wow. The crown was very disturbed because these were supposed to have been citizens. 24 out of 25 million citizens died. Now who's going to pay the taxes? Hmm. So then the crown uh, began importing population from Africa. Some Africans came as conquistadores, most came as slaves, and also populations from Asia from China, Korea, Japan, India, Philippines, Malaysia, etc., all pouring into Mesoamerica. So we got this wonderful fusion today 
of what we term the Indo-Afro-Oriento-Ibero-American population. But this is all because of disease, that we have this wonderful mestizaje. Absent that, we would probably be a largely an indigenous-based hemisphere. But that is the nature of epidemics. Here we are right in the middle of another one. One of the things that we have learned, uh, Dr. Shu and I, in the decades that we have worked together has been, hey, we're moving on, almost on to th our third decade uh, <laughs> since the mid 90s. Uh, Dr. Shu was very, very young when I first met him. Well, actually, uh, you were, you were just graduating from UCLA, were you not? When we first, yeah. maybe you could just describe a little bit of what piqued your interest about working in health and in epidemiology. What was your path? So as you know, I started off as an engineer also, um, and I did a little bit of that for a little while, but I think um, part of it was as much as I loved the training and the analytical reasoning and skills that it gave me, I uh, was having a hard time picturing myself, uh, you know, being in front of a computer or being in a cubicle working on, you know, AutoCAD drawings all day long. And so I think uh, part of it, part of what drew me to epidemiology was this opportunity to be able to interact with the public to actually you know do research or find some answers to some questions that really could be applied you know let's take this information what can we do with this information to help people out there um, and I think for me it was a little bit more gratifying or at least a, a faster gratification than a project or a design for a building or for you know uh, for something that I know people would use and get great use out of it, but it wasn't the same. I think um, for me, the same feedback as, as knowing that we're trying to get answers to some really important questions here. And, and we are hoping to take that knowledge to be able to apply it and really help some people out there. Amazing. And I guess my journey was a, a little bit similar. I mean, like you, I was also initially trained in engineering which gives you a nice skill set. I mean, I wrote my first computer program in 1963 on an analog <laughs> computer, for Pete's sake. Then I got to learn Fortran. However, the Chicano movement came along. I jumped in with both feet and wound up doing community organizing in Fruitvale in East Oakland, where one of the biggest needs was simply the lack of medical care. And so this community group asked me to help them set up a clinic. So I did. That was La Clinica de la Raza up in Oakland. I had the honor of being the first executive director. And as an engineer, the first thing I wanted to know was, okay, so what, what are the needs? What are the illnesses that we need to deal with? And nobody had any data because Latinos weren't even counted in the census at that point as Latinos. So one of the reasons why I became a researcher was to provide data where there were none. And as I did that, then I started to discover that in fact, it's really important. There are data sets out there like a mortality rate, how many people of what age died due to what disease, but who selects the data to analyze and who places those data into a narrative line is really, really important. So that, for example, when the um, COVID first was noticed in um, early March in Los Angeles County, uh, the first map showed that the uh, sources of infection were the Platinum Triangle, Beverly Hills, Brentwood. Um, West Side, yeah. West Side, all of that area. Mm -hmm. uh, and initially, in fact, the Los Angeles Times called, oh, this is a rich man's disease. Poor people don't have to worry. And I said, hey, wait a minute. 
who has the discretionary time and money to go traveling around the world and become exposed and then come back? Well, not if you're a farm worker. Um, then I said, well, what about the folks, once people were told to shelter in place, you know, some folks immediately got access to care. Remember the Lakers got tested within like 24 yeah. hours. Yeah. Uh, but you needed to have a doctor's order to get tested. And it was that way for almost the first two months. So if you were a farm worker, for example, uh, you don't have health insurance, you can't find a doctor because of the Latino physician shortage. If, so how do you get a doctor's prescription to go to get tested? So farm workers did, and they continued to work out in the fields and large crews. Plus, if you're a farm worker, you can't plant strawberries at home. You can't harvest almonds at home. You have to actually be out there. So some people were able to shelter and others weren't. And so we pointed out, starting with our very first report that Dr. Chu and I did way back in, when was that? I believe in April, mm -hmm. uh, that we were likely to see COVID sweep out of the Platinum Triangle, the Brentwood, the Beverly Hills, Bel Air, and move more into the area where folks had to work, the other essential workers. Right. And so this is where the uh, personal narrative becomes important because, as, for example, I would go to the grocery stores and if you remember the first few weeks when people were fighting over the last roll of paper towels or the yes. last rolls of toilet paper. <laughs> yeah, and I used to say, well, that's great. That's almost a luxury. Uh, what if all the farm workers became sick and you had no food and people were fighting over the last sack of tomatoes in the store? That would be very vicious fights. So early on at the center, we noticed that there were other essential workers that were kind of under the radar scope, the farm workers, the packing house workers, the truck driver, construction crew, landscapers, nannies, attendants in nursing homes, auto mechanics, etc. So we have kept an eye on these other essential workers that weren't as high profile as, say, physicians and nurses, but thanks to their work, everyone else is able to shelter at home and be able to go to the store and find what they need. Now, four months later, uh, we are starting to see that uh, these other essential workers have been very hard hit. So Dr. Shu, perhaps you can chat a little bit about, we've seen some particular trends and vulnerabilities. Yes, absolutely. And, and um, it's exactly as you mentioned, you know, these uh, groups were not, were under the radar, as you said. And so they didn't always get the, the access to, for example, the PPEs, the personal, you know, the mask or the personal protective equipment that, for example, someone in the occupation such as, uh, you know, nursing or physician would kind of, uh, would, would get or at least uh, have better access to. And so because of that and because of the lack of awareness, uh, there have been outbreaks, multiple outbreaks in packing houses, in uh, um not just farm workers, but even the uh, warehouses where they pack the fruit and pack the vegetables, uh, meat processing. Um, there's been multiple outbreaks in LA County. Uh, I think there's a, there was a meat packing industry or meat storage uh, warehouse. Um, so unfortunately, we're now learning, or at least the public, uh, you saw this before, but the public is finding out that this was another vulnerable group that probably needed better access or, or should have been allowed to get better access to, to protective equipment. It's amazing. We have so far to date released seven reports. They're available on our website, but we have looked at different sides of the uh, impact of COVID-19. 
we noticed, interestingly, that even though the coronavirus is not racist, it doesn't discriminate, it really could care less whether it lands on an old, young, whatever person, but there are very, very marked trends in who becomes infected and who dies. And for as we looked at different groups, uh, all the uh, race ethnic groups compared to white had higher case rates uh, and higher death rates. Uh, Asians, for example, averaged about 50% higher. African Americans, Latinos averaged about three to 400% higher. And some smaller groups such as Native Hawaiians, American Indians, four or five, even 600% higher than non-Hispanic white. Now, given that the coronavirus really doesn't discriminate, we need to understand why this variability. Perhaps, Dr. Xu, you could share some of your thinking, that what, what things popped to your mind that we would want to learn about to, this, to explain why this great variability by race ethnicity. I, I, um, absolutely. I, um, you're, you're also an epidemiologist at heart, Dr. Hayes, because uh, you, know, you just mentioned all these patterns, these really important patterns and inequities that we want to try to understand. So as you mentioned, uh, for example, Latinos and uh, African-Americans have higher rates, um, not because of their quote-unquote race ethnicity, and, and that's another conversation we can have later, but it's because they're more likely to be represented in some of these occupations, right? The grocery store workers, factory workers, truck drivers, so on and so forth. They're more likely to be in those occupations. And those occupations are the ones that you deal in, in general, deal with the public more, right? So they have spent a lot of time in epidemiology. We'd call that your exposure time. They have a lot of exposure to the public. And so, of course, that increases their risk of getting it. And of course, then if you're exposed to the public all the time, there will be more cases. You know, it's not, it doesn't have anything to do that, oh, it's that particular race or ethnic group. It's the occupations that they're in. It's the risk factors, the exposures that they're more likely to have uh, in those occupations. So what can we do? You know, make sure they have access to PPE, make sure they have access to masks, make sure their employers are taking the right steps. And, and we're starting to see some of that. And I, I wish there was more of it, but you might've noticed the plexiglass that has gone up, even at the grocery stores, uh, you know, to try to reduce the, the amount of exposure. Finally, but it only took about four months. Right. <laughs> Meanwhile, those uh, checkout cash register clerks were exposed, usually uh, to at least two or 300 people per shift that right. they would check out their groceries so they could go home and eat, but their checkout clerk, him or herself, was undergoing a tremendous risk. And finally, we're starting to do something about that. Right. Well, let's think about moving forward. We're in the middle of a very delicate situation that this is supposed to be the start of school. Yes. Um, be it from universities such as UCLA, USC are still figuring out what do we do to high schools, to elementary school, to I have a granddaughter who is in preschool up in Sacramento with everybody wondering, um, what do we do? Uh, and it's a big issue. Uh, perhaps you could share with us, Dr. Shu, just some of the thinking yours and maybe CDC and other people. How can people figure out what to do in this situation? It's very fluid. Yeah, it's very fluid and it's very variable too. And, and, and you can understand, you know, there are some counties, even in California, uh, you know, the northeastern part of the state, where their caseload, their case rates have been, have been relatively low. 
So in areas or communities where the rate has been relatively low, and as long as people are taking all the precautions, right, you can make an argument for some type of hybrid or some very careful reopening. Of course, the big question is, uh, you know, will children, kids who are preschool age or elementary school age be able to keep a mask on or socially distance all day, right? That's, that's a really tough question to answer. And that's just for the kids. What about college age students? We're not even convinced that they will, uh, right. you know, socially distance or, or, you know, follow all the measures as we've seen from some of the news, you know, in Florida and in Texas, where, you know, there are a lot of folks, uh, students, young people uh, getting together. And, and, you know, that's, that's, I think that's a big unknown. I think where they, it might be possible to, either have lower density or where those communities do have lower rates. You know, if there's a way to, to be really careful, then perhaps some kind of limited or hybrid reopening could occur. Uh, but I think it's, you know, the big unknown is can, can this group, whether it's students, younger students or college age students, can they follow the social distancing, right? Can they follow all the measures? And, and if, if that doesn't happen, then we're going to see more, more peaks, more spikes, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Well, I have a two and a half year old granddaughter and she's very, very athletic, very active, constant motion. <laughs> and she will put a mask on. And this is just, you know, when we're just going outside to the backyard where she plays and within two minutes, it's off. Right. I mean, it's not, she took it up, just falls off. She's running, she's climbing, she's sliding, doing whatever else. Right. And, you know, this is a uh, very concerning time for all of those who deal with children. Right. So uh, what are some other resources, Dr. Shu, that you would want to recommend that people consult uh, just to try to stay on top of these questions and the current answers to them? So as you mentioned before, things are very fluid. So I definitely suggest uh, con uh, checking on a regular basis right? Even at the beginning of the pandemic, there wasn't as much awareness about asymptomatic transmission where people who didn't have any symptoms could still transmit. And we're learning now that that is uh, one of the routes of transmission. So the CDC website would be a great resource, you know, to check on a regular basis because we might find out new information later about a different route or about a different group that might be more vulnerable. So, so definitely, I think one suggestion would be to make sure you try to keep an eye on the news or, or on the CDC website, for example, on a regular basis, because things can change. And they often do. Yep. One of the, uh, we're, we're involved, Dr. Chu and I, in a number of projects uh, looking at COVID, both epidemiologically, a little bit more clinically. And one of the clinical issues is that apparently with COVID, unlike, you know, the regular flu that we get the flu shot for every year, the COVID just has some really nasty little uh, catches to it. One of which is just because you've got it and you survived it, you may not be back to 100% because apparently there are a lot of sequelae. There are follow-on things that seem to be cropping up that we were not aware of during the initial days, say back in January, February, March. We've been reading the studies from Italy, from China, from Spain, mm -hmm. and it turns out even children who have fairly low case rates and fairly low mortality uh, may be saddled with sequelae. Sometimes it's respiratory, sometimes it's renal, yes. uh, maybe neurological. Uh, we just don't know. But this is not the common cold that you can get it. And if you survive it, you're okay. 
there may be some lingering after effects that we're just beginning to understand right now. So I, I guess both Dr. Shu and I would be in agreement. The best thing to do is avoid right. exposure. Absolutely. Please, let's uh, do a little prevention. We will continue to be releasing reports uh, throughout the rest of this pandemic, I'm sure. Dr. Shu, do you have any last words of advice you'd like to share with our listeners? Um, no, I, I just wanted to echo what you said. You know, in public health, we focus uh, very much, if at all possible, on the prevention side, right? Rather than trying to treat it or worry about potential sequelae, you know, let's let's try to avoid getting it in the first place, right? So prevention, prevention, you know, if you can just not get it at all in the first place, that would be, you know, I think that would really be ideal. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for spending your precious time with us, Dr. Shu. I know you have a lot of things on your plate. I think we, I think we both are in that same boat. <laughs> well, thank you for listening to this week's episode about COVID-19. Uh, we're getting more information all the time. The more we understand about how COVID-19 is developing and harming our communities, I don't see any good coming out of this other than we learn how to work together. We will keep you informed. If you want to consult our early reports, you can access them at our website, uclahealth.org slash slash research. And some of you may want to dive in a little bit more, as Dr. Shu suggested, check out the cdc.gov website, not only in terms of just suggestions about wearing face masks or school, but also to read the reports as they're coming in about various aspects of COVID-19. And people say, well, what can I do? How can I change this? Well, I have, as the old Chicano professor, uh, one very clear suggestion. If you want to do something about this, if you can, register. And once you register, vote. And if you can't register, go find someone who can register and encourage them and walk them to register and vote, vote, vote. That's the only way that we're going to change things on the long-term basis. And in the interim, there are many, many nonprofit voluntary organizations who are involved, community organizations, find organizations, get involved. We can beat this COVID together. That's all for this week. Thank you all for listening. And please remember to subscribe if you haven't done so. This podcast was written and produced by Giselle Hernandez and Brandy Lopez. Our executive producers are Seda Santiso Greenwood and Adriana Valdez. Editing was by Elias Rodriguez. And the music this week is by the Mariachi de Uclatlán. Tune in for the next episode as we delve further into topics in Latino health.